It's the sort of math problem that requires a third party major investor. And that is what we talk about when we talk about infrastructure. What are the things that we are investing in across for all of us to make our economy function, to make families work? And care is one of those things. Welcome back to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. Today, I'm joined by Fatima Goss-Graves, the president and CEO at the National Women's Law Center and one of the founders of the Time's Up initiative. We'll talk about her career, the gender pay gap, how COVID has exacerbated gender inequalities, and what she's optimistic about for the future. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Fatima, it's so nice to see you here on the Women on the Move podcast. Thank you for joining. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Well, I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. First off, I'd love to start with your background and get to know you a little bit personally. So you've spoken about being the first lawyer in your family, and I'd love to know what really prompted you to pursue that path. It's funny because when I went to law school, I had no idea what I was doing. I realize that now, and, and that happens a lot of times for people who are sort of the first to do that type of thing. But I always thought I had an understanding of the law because I learned about the law and really justice through the stories of my family. My dad and and some of his siblings, he came from a pretty big family, were the named plaintiffs in a school desegregation case against Knoxville, Tennessee public schools. And so I grew up knowing that story with a lot of pride and also really believing that the law was this powerful tool for change in the world. I love that. It was so personal to you. What was it that your family was involved in? Can you tell us more about that case? You know, so this is a series of post-Brown cases that the NAACP Legal Defense Fund brought, where in, in that period, right after Brown, you had a lot of school districts dragging their feet around desegregating their schools and coming up with rules that maybe on their face might seem neutral to prevent actually allowing integration of schools. And so a similar thing happened in Knoxville schools where they had come up with a series of rules that would just so happen to mean that you could never have any Black children (laughs) attending the white school. And so they won. And the, the court was very clear that you can't have these rules that aren't actually really neutral, that are steeped in a long history of segregation to prevent implementation of Brown. The interesting thing is my dad ended up not going to the white school because he was in high school by the time the Supreme Court ruled and he had all his friends and he was an athlete and all of that. And so he didn't want to switch schools, but all of his younger siblings did. That's remarkable. So you grew up with that story and really understanding the power of the law. Does that mean from an early age that you really knew that was your calling? Well, I I just knew the law was important. I you know I actually recently found a letter to the editor or op-ed that I had written in the third grade. We can figure out why I did this, but anyway, it was like a series of kids writing at, at letters about what they wanted to do in the world, and in the third grade. 
my imagination took me to being a secretary because that was what I saw women in offices doing. My mom was a social worker at the time, so she worked outside of the home. I wrote this very powerful op-ed about that. So I don't, you know, and at some point I wanted to be a flight attendant. So I am sure I ebbed and flowed along the way, but I've just long had a calling for justice. Well, you're now the president and CEO of the National Women's Law Center, and I would love it if you could share with us the history of the center and what its current mission is. So the National Women's Law Center was founded almost 50 years ago. We turned 50 next year. And we were founded initially as a women's rights project of the Center for Law and Social Policy. And our co-founders, it's interesting, one of our co-founders was sort of the first woman hired after some staff organizing led to her hiring. At the time, there weren't women attorneys on the staff and the staff The secretaries on the staff organized and had a few demands, and one was that they hire women attorneys. Another was that they actually work on women's rights. This is in 1972. The ACLU had started its women's rights project, and there was sort of the growing sense that you needed a law and policy arm to match the movement work that was happening. They also had a demand that they stop making coffee, and it's my understanding that those demands were all met. And they hired our co-founder and from there we grew and our mission hasn't really changed. We, you know, we seek to improve the lives of women and girls in this country and the tools that we use are broad and deep, right? We are, have litigators, we have public policy advocates, we have researchers, we have storytellers, we have culture makers. And all of that is to ground us in this idea that we believe we can build a better world in this country. We talk in terms of gender justice. We say that's what we're fighting for. We use that phrase intentionally in part to signal that our work is both work that is broad, but it is a work that sometimes goes really deep and that gender justice and racial justice and economic justice are really intertwined in important and powerful ways. And the center really focuses on many key components of economic livelihoods, societal issues. What are the primary areas of focus, you know, for you, especially right now? And are there any examples of recent work that you can cite, you know, that you're really proud of? Well, there's no question that the COVID-19 pandemic has upended all of our lives, but that has been very, very true for women in this country. And so the last year we have seen that as our top thing to do, because we knew that women were the vast majority of essential workers. It's also true that women experienced the greatest unemployment. And some of that was because they are concentrated in the sectors that were hardest hit in this pandemic. They make the majority of hospitality and leisure, for example, the majority of domestic workers, many of whom were laid off at the front of the pandemic with no notice and no support. But also part of the reason women were leaving the workforce was because our care infrastructure crumbled this year, totally. And so those things have shaped a big part of our work in this last year, responding to ensure that there were actually meaningful relief packages that could meet the needs of families, taking on the idea of supporting essential workers and make that work visible, make the work that women do visible, which is about the conversation today, but also what comes tomorrow. If these workers are so very essential to our society, to our economy, and to our 
families? What does that mean for their wages and working conditions going forward? And really fundamentally, we have dove into trying to solve the care crisis with a with a particular focus for us on child care, but looking across on child care, on paid leave, on home and community-based services, that care infrastructure and care economy, which I think we now know is so important, needs a major, major investment. And I'm really, really proud of the relief we were able to get in the American Rescue Plan. We have the largest increase in childcare spending since World War II that was in that plan. There was a child tax credit in that plan that actually, you know, once implemented this summer, it stands to move millions of families out of deep poverty. And the idea that that is a possible thing to do, that this country can do big and important things in this way, it was exciting and inspiring for all of us. It is such a significant moment and it's unfortunate it took a pandemic to get here, but it is nice to see this momentum around this issue because childcare or any caregiving really has been so critical to women's ability to work and freedom of what they want to pursue. So, you know, it is at least one good outcome, I think. You know, I'd love to get back to the jobs picture. So the Law Center has been such an important source of information for so many people. I've seen it cited by so many news outlets and bloggers and writers. Every time a jobs report comes out that your writers, your staff are really looking into those numbers and pulling out what it means for women consistently. And I just want to say thank you for that because I use it, I look at it, and I find it very important to keep track of this. You know, one shocking thing, and you referred to this, is that in the May report, women lost 92.3% of the net jobs lost in the retail sector. It was 411,000 jobs lost in retail, but women only make up less than half of that sector's workforce. I think that is a stunning statistic that number one, not only does the workforce have so many women, but second, that women really lost the bulk of the jobs there. You know, what is happening in that kind of sector, do you think, that makes it so problematic for women? Well, first I should say, I'm so glad that you're looking at the data. We put it out there in the world because we think it's really, really important that we track over time and closely because as people tell the story of recovery and reopen, we think it's really important that you understand what that is looking like for for women in this country. And, and, and sometimes like the retail example, because we are so eager to say we're done, we're done with this pandemic, our economy is fine, you know, can we move to the next conversation, it can be too easy to have an incomplete story, right? So you might look at the retail sector and say, wow, retail lost some jobs in a month where there were overall gains. What's going on? It's going to tell you a different story if you say, actually, men gain jobs in retail. (laughs) It's women who lost jobs and actually at a higher rate. So that is a different what is going on question. And if you aren't looking at the details of the data, then you you might miss that. And so, and some of it is going to require us looking at the features of some of these jobs that are coming back that weren't features that began with the pandemic. They were longstanding. Retail, for example, is a space that had a longstanding problem with wages and with fair schedules, for example. And 
even before the pandemic, unpredictable schedules or just-in-time scheduling where your employer might schedule you at a very last notice because there's lots of technology that that allows you to sort of schedule to the minute, really. That's a hard thing for somebody who is caring for children too. And it is a thing that women have long said is not sustainable for them for this sector and has upended in their lives. At a time our care structure is so, so very fragile and so many kids are not consistently in schools. One of the things that we worry about in sectors like retail and sectors like the hospitality and leisure generally is that the features of those jobs will make it really impossible for women who also have caregiving responsibilities to maintain jobs, even when hired. And most women have caregiving responsibilities. It's not like there's just some corner of the world who's doing it. It is actually the thing that most women do, both work and engage in care. I'm so glad you brought that up because that is such a critical detail, not only by looking at the overall trend of what's happening, but whether we can solve this problem going forward if we don't get the caregiving piece corrected. So it it brings us back to your important point earlier. You know, the other data piece I think that is so important to look at is what's happening with the unemployment rate. We might talk about it at a high level, but then we have to break it down. What's happening to women and what's happening to Black and Latina women in particular? are suffering even more. In reading your work on the May report, it was interesting to see that, you know, women's overall unemployment rate was reported at 5.4%. But if you took the 1.79 million women who dropped out of the labor force and aren't even counted, that unemployment rate would be 7.6%. And again, worse for Black and Latina women. So like, talk to me about the importance of peeling apart each of these layers while we have to keep this really front and center. That is one of the things that I think is really hard for people to grasp. We had such a shocking number of women who left the workforce in a short period of time and were no longer looking for work. And so they're not counted as unemployed because they're not seeking employment right now. And they're not seeking employment right now because they don't have a care infrastructure. And so that sticky piece doesn't fully get told in the story. The other piece, and I'm glad you raised what unemployment looks like for for Black women in particular, their unemployment has stayed higher and they've been unemployed for longer. And so even without counting the people adding back in the folks who are not looking, the average you know, it's a little over 5% for women overall, but it's over 8% for Black women. And so what we tend to think about is that we'll know we are actually fully recovered when Black women and Latina women are fully recovered. And so that keeps us really focused on the need for additional investments, additional shifts in how we think about work to actually make it possible for the future. And what do you think we need to do beyond caregiving to really help Black women in particular get back to the workforce or really break that pattern and get us on a much higher trajectory? We actually have to be in a situation where we're paying more in these jobs that were historically so very low paid. And I'm talking about things like hospitality and leisure where a lot of Black women are employed, but I'm also talking about care sector jobs 
where Black and Latino women are really disproportionately employed. And part of the reason our care system is so fragile is it's kind of built off the idea that it is okay to pay basically poverty level wages to the mostly women who are caring for the most important things to us. And the reason that is, is because families can't really afford to pay more than they're paying. And so that's when you have a third party come in. And the way that our federal programs are structured, both our child care program, but also our home and community-based services programs, they operate through federal programs that part of what can happen is a deep investment in those programs accompanied by a higher rate of pay for workers who were paid through those programs. And so, you know, it might seem like I'm simplifying it a little bit, but in some ways the concept is pretty simple. That if we want a stronger care infrastructure, then we're going to have to pay workers more. And paying workers more actually helps the mostly Black and brown women who have been doing those jobs. It will create over 2 million jobs if we actually move forward with the plan that Senator Murray and Representative Scott have introduced around child care. So, you know, we have that as both a care job question and a other job question. But I also think it's time that we look at raising the minimum wage across to $15 an hour. And I just want to mention here those stats that we do look at when it comes to the wage gap. Before the pandemic, women overall were making 82 cents on the dollar for every dollar that men made. But it was so much worse for Black women who made 62 cents to the dollar. Do you think that with this attention, as we're talking about going forward, we can make a difference now, decreasing the gap? I think that we can. Part of what it requires is making it visible. But it also is going to require doing things that might seem hard, like raising wages in the lowest paid fields, opening more pathways to training and creating welcoming environments in higher paid fields, and addressing discrimination even when people are in the same job. We have study after study after study that shows that when employers are left with their own devices, they often end up paying Black women less. They pay Black mothers especially less. There are ways to get around that. One of the ways to get around that is transparency. Other ways are doing audits. Uh, you know, having the Paycheck Fairness Act passed, which we think would provide some of the important incentives employers need to pay their workers right the first time. All of that is important. So when you think about what return to the office might look like for many workers, I've read that many Black workers really don't want to come back to the office in the same way because of some of the things you're talking about, whether that's outright hostility, discrimination, or more the covert microaggressions. What do you think about that return to the office? You know, How can we make that just a better environment for everyone? It's a sad state of affairs if during COVID, people felt safer, safer or freer from discrimination. Although I, you know, we, we house and run the Times Up Legal Defense Fund. And I will say on har sexual harassment, people found ways to engage in harassment during the pandemic by text over Zoom. And of course, there were lots of essential workers who never stopped coming to work and actually felt more vulnerable because of the economy. But it is also true that there is a little bit of story where people were saying some of the things that would happen to me day to day didn't happen because I, I missed those casual encounters. Well, we all know the casual encounters that make up culture, that it, it's such an opportunity 
to actually create a very vibrant and rich culture where people can thrive. And so employers have a chance to reset. This reopen conversation everyone is having right now about what it looks like, it should include what it looks like to set a culture that is different, where your workers can thrive, where bias doesn't run rampant, where people have a sense of belonging. We have to keep that in mind for sure. And the time is now as we're all having these conversations together. Now, going back to what you were describing on caregiving, I just wanted to raise something I read on a blog on your website. Several of the authors of this blog wrote that society, quote, has taken for granted that the impossible math problem of caregiving will be solved with women's underpaid and undervalued labor. And they called this the unworkable calculus of caregiving. I find that fascinating. I think that's so perfectly said and sad that that's what we have to use to describe this. You know, as as you go back and you think about what President Biden is proposing and hopefully trying to get through, you know, why do you think it's so critical that we address this unworkable calculus? I have good writers on my staff. I do. What happened during the pandemic is that women were filling the gap. And some of that was totally invisible work, right? The work of sometimes homeschooling or caring for children. It was baked in that women would fill that role in part because of sort of long-standing cultural expectations and tropes, but also because there wasn't anything else. And that's not a system. That is not at all a system that either relies on women filling the gap or relies on continuing to dramatically underpay mostly women mostly women of color and immigrant women workers to provide care. But I actually am really struck that if you talk to most families, childcare is their most expensive cost. It's more expensive than their mortgage. It's more expensive than rent. It's more expensive sometimes than colleges. Families don't have a lot of money just hanging around for more. You know, it might seem impossible, but actually it's the sort of math problem that requires a third party major investor. And that is what we talk about when we talk about infrastructure. What are the things that we are investing in across for all of us to make our economy function, to make families work. And care is one of those things. And it's the thing that we hear again and again from businesses that is their big worry about having workers return. Having an unstable care situation makes them worried that they will not be able to have their workers return in the way that they need. It is in all of our interests to solve this problem. So I'd love to go back to the subject of payment practices, you know, the wage gap. So I read an interview where you discussed how some pretty common payment practices that companies can contribute to a gender pay gap. Can you explain what you mean by that and maybe talk about what legal actions are available to really address this? Yeah, and we're actually at a state level making some progress in changing laws. And so we're, we already know that a couple of things are working. So, for example, one of the really common practices that's out there is salary matching. Whatever you made in your last job is your starting place for what you can make when you start a new job. So a number of of cities around the country and the state of Massachusetts have rules that basically say that you can't ask people about their prior salary to set 
their new salary. There's already studies that shows that that's reducing both a race and gender wage gap. What it would mean is that women end up bringing lower pay from job to job. That's a big level setter that is important. But there are a bunch of other things, not retaliating against people who talk about their pay. will say that because there's so much secrecy around pay, oftentimes people have very quiet conversations about what they're making to check. Women are often talking to the wrong people, by the way. They're more likely to talk to other women about pay. You should not be doing that. <laughs> you should be talking to men who might be making more to understand what the real market is. But in any event, it's a pretty common practice and not experience retaliation is important. The other thing that employers, I think, are grappling with right now and I think can really make a difference is not only how to set pay, how to do the regular checks to make sure you didn't inadvertently allow pay disparities to show up. And so, you know, one of the things that larger employers are required to do, and those who are federal contractors, are to report their pay data to either the Department of Labor or the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. I really believe employers will look at that data before turning it over. You're not going to shoot along something that shows that you have really giant pay gaps that you're not attending to. And sometimes even taking that look allows you to correct for it and, and try to understand what caused it. How did this how did this sneak in in the first place? We have leaned into transparency. We have leaned into ensuring workers can talk about their wages. And we've leaned into putting a few more rules around how it is employers set pay so that we don't start out with a lower rate for women. Thank you. I think those are really great examples that companies and individuals can really pursue. So we appreciate that. So we'd love to go back to your work now at the Law Center and understand what's on the horizon for you over the next year as we come out of the pandemic and as you celebrate your 50th anniversary. It's a big deal to be turning 50. And so, you know, stay tuned because we're going to be doing a lot of celebrating and marking and marking really women's history over the last five decades as well. So hopefully uh, you guys will be a part of that. Obviously, we're pretty focused on getting the infrastructure package done and doing it in a way that ensures that women can have an equitable economic recovery. And so that's a big priority. You may have seen in the news that the Supreme Court next year will be hearing a really important abortion case. That case is one that goes directly at the heart of Roe versus Wade, challenging its ruling. We haven't had anything like that in decades, any case that has challenged it so squarely. And so that's a thing that people have to be paying attention to and weighing in on. And so we will be doing that work. And the other thing that I will say is that we didn't get to talk about as much, but it's a thing that gives me a lot of joy, is that even as we're doing this sort of defensive work, we will be doing work that tells the story of where women and girls in this country are, especially women and girls of color, that launches forward policy ideas at the state and federal level, sort of racing as fast as we can to actually do right um, by women in this country. And there will be tons of opportunities for people to join us in these campaigns going forward. 
I really look forward to seeing that work and celebrating alongside you in terms of the gains that have been made. When you think about how far women and girls have come, you know, what makes you optimistic for the future? What is it about our gains that we can really try to accelerate going forward? You know, in 1972, if you think about when the Law Center was founded, you know, our co-founders were kind of making a lot of stuff up. We didn't have a lot of rights that were secured either in our constitution or or in ways that were meaningful. The Supreme Court hadn't yet said harassment was protected by our sex discrimination laws. We didn't yet have the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, which the Law Center helped get into place in 1978. We didn't have Title IX's meaningful and robust protections. We didn't have the Family Medical Leave Act or the Affordable Care Act. There has been so much good done over these last five decades that have meant that women have different sorts of opportunities in this country and the work ahead is vast and deep. So we will be straddling that line, but pausing to do some celebrating of what is possible in this country. Well, Fatima, it's just been a joy to speak with you. I want to thank you for your tireless advocacy for women and girls for doing everything you do to support our continued advancements. And just speaking with you today has been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. This has been fun. Thanks for joining my conversation with Fatima Goss-Graves. She makes such a compelling case for why we need to invest in a care infrastructure that works for both families and employers. I love that the Law Center focuses not just on the research, but also on offering solutions. I turn to the research often as I develop my own team strategy, and I encourage you to check it out at nwlc.org. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank N.A. is a member of the FDIC. 